to know they can do amen. That's important. You want to get out your sermon outline? It says, horrible and heavenly power. I hope. That's what it should say. We are in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, you may remember that last week we were in Daniel chapter 4. And so we are doing this chronologically and not canonically, not in the order of the chapters, but in order of time. And so we're going to jump ahead to 7 and 8, and then we'll go back and pick up uh, 5 and 6 later as we follow along in time. If you have one of those... uh, Uh, bookmarks that we handed out when we started it. You'll see that we're doing this uh, chronologically. This is a very important passage in the Bible. Uh, For biblical theologians, uh, verses 11 through 14 are among the most significant verses in the whole Bible, probably apart from uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis. And so it's a really important uh, passage that we've come to today, and we're going to get into that as we go through. But I I wanted to let you know that there are so many other passages and so much else, uh, particularly in the New Testament, that's going to refer back to this passage we're going through today. So Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 1 through verse 16. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. You can see we have some of the pictures on the banners that Louise did of some of these. said, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. 
I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we have come to your word and we're humbled before it. We confess, Lord, that in our ignorance we struggle to understand it. There are people here this morning who need to hear the message of this word. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit you enable us to learn from the prophet Daniel. By it, show us your sovereignty over history and events. And may you teach us our great need for faith in your Son. Do this in and for each of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. The end of the world is a remarkably popular topic these days. Hollywood movies... As always, a useful cultural barometer are a clear witness to our fascination with the end of the world. Over the last several years, uh, we have seen films in which the future of life on Earth is threatened by aliens, asteroids, floods, frost, killer viruses, lethal machines, mutant creatures, and nuclear holocaust, just to name a few. Now, this interest may stem from an Uh, existential angst, which is sort of like a societal high anxiety, and may come from the constant threat of terrorist attack, a growing awareness of humanity's uh, incredible ability to make the planet uninhabitable. It may come from some root cause that uh, we haven't discovered yet. It's going to be Rick Barron's 40th birthday this week. A sign of the apocalypse, if there ever was one. But there will be cake afterwards. So I guess all those over 40 get to eat first. And then everybody under 40 and teens you eat fourth. So you're really turning 40. The end of the world is surely coming. But wherever it comes from, it's undeniable that there's more interest in the end of the world these days than there's been for a long time, at least in my lifetime. And this phenomenon should make this a good time to study the apocalyptic portions of the Bible because they're largely about the end of the world. And if people really want to know how the world's going to end, whether it'll be with a bang or a whimper, what better place to turn than to the word of the sovereign God who controls all history? 
And yet for many Christians, the apocalyptic parts of the Bible, such as the last half of Daniel, where we're starting today, or the book of Revelation, are sealed books. They're nervous about entering them because of fear that they simply won't understand what they find there. Now, it doesn't help that there are some preachers or uh, popular fiction writers who expound these books in such a way that they claim, uh, for example, that the current configuration of the Middle East exactly fits the end-time scenario that they have constructed. These scenarios which are made up of a last day's cocktail of two parts Daniel, three parts Revelation, with a dash of Ezekiel thrown in, end up resembling one of these composite beasts of Daniel 7. These complicated end-time scenarios tend to combine uh, different elements of the Bible, of the biblical text, into a single piece, even though those texts cannot easily be harmonized by a plain reading of any of those texts. And so it leaves you all wondering, is there another way to understand these biblical passages, a way that through sane and sensible interpretation uncovers the message of these passages for believers in all times and in all places? And if we understand the central purpose of these passages and focus our attention on what's clear and straightforward rather than on what's obscure and complicated then we'll find blessing and encouragement in the apocalyptic parts of the Bible. And what's more, Christians who disagree on the end times can agree on the central truths, whether the Lord returns sooner or later. But before we go there, we need to take a moment to talk about understanding apocalyptic passages. That's what we call all these passages that talk about the end times. To understand any kind of writing, we need to understand its purpose. And we usually make such judgments intuitively. We instinctively know when a sentence doesn't make much sense, such as one that begins, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. It's a pretty obvious mismatch. First part of that sentence is apocalyptic. The second part is a weather report. It's a problem with a lot of these end-time scenarios books. They're taking apocalyptic literature and trying to make it sound like a weather report. It just doesn't work. So what does work? Well, first of all, we have to define what apocalyptic literature is. Because this is really one of the first times we've gotten into some of these strange end-times passages with lots of strange images. And I've printed it there for you in your bulletin outline. A good definition. Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is an age characterized by conflict and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. The revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. The purpose of Daniel, the purpose of Revelation, of Ezekiel, of parts of Thessalonians is to comfort and encourage and exhort the faithful. 
It's not to get you to speculate about what will be. And you can see this today around the world. The, the place where revelation is most preached is in the persecuted church. Is in places of oppression and suffering. They love the, these passages because they comfort them and it brings them hope and encouragement. And so therefore apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology of hope particularly to those whom the world has marginalized. And it reminds us that God is presently on his throne and that he will ultimately triumph. In the meantime, whatever the cost today in terms of pain and suffering, faithfully following God is the only way to go. People constantly complain about how bad the world is. And it's pretty bad. But know that they did the exact same thing in Daniel's day and in Jesus' day, in the Apostles' day, and throughout church history. But those who read apocalyptic literature correctly, those who take the time to understand what Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, which is also called the Apocalypse of St. John, what they're all about. And these are the ones who have seen heaven opened and know how the story ends. And so these are the ones who look forward with unshakable hope to their final vindication when at last that the last day comes for God to decisively act to bring in that final age of salvation with the triumph of the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that's the point of apocalyptic literature. Yes, it's bad, but this is not all there is. The best is yet to come. And when it comes, you will see that Jesus is victorious and the followers of Jesus will win with him. And so the resounding chorus and, and Handel's Messiah will proclaim Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth. And so with that in mind, let's continue our study of Daniel. Since we're not following this in chapter order, but chronologically, now we're in chapter 7. And here we find ourselves trying to understand a vision of monsters. A vision of monsters, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of this matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to this. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, devoured and broken pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. 
I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. The first thing we see here is that we have moved into a new error. A new error, E-R-A, error. I know I say things funny. I'm from New Jersey. There is a new king, Belshazzar. The age of Nebuchadnezzar is over and gone. First four chapters, we dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. He's gone. Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. And yet Daniel is still in Babylon, and he's still serving in the king's court. And one night he has a vision. Verse 2. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And immediately you see we're in the realm of metaphor and imagery rather than straightforward description. In the Bible, the sea is used as a symbol of chaos and ultimately rebellion against God, which is why the Psalms repeatedly tell us that God is mighty because he rules over the wind and waves of the sea. And thus, when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he was demonstrating his power as the Son of God. So it's a very bold statement to have control over the sea. And in this vision, Daniel sees monsters. Now, these aren't large and dangerous like um, the Tyrannosaurus Rex of Jurassic Park. Rather, these are terrifying because they're evil. They're agents of chaos and destruction, and they're utterly opposed to God. And this stirred-up sea produces four startling creatures, one after the other, each more frightening than the one before. And most interpreters see these as representing the same kingdoms as the image of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. Next week we'll see he refers to them as representing four kings. And so we make that analogy to these four kingdoms, same as in Daniel 2. And so based on this understanding, the first beast, verse 4, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. It's a mixture of uh, animal and bird, and it represents Babylon. This beast signifies strength and majesty of a lion combined with the speed and power of an eagle. Both images were used by Jeremiah to depict Nebuchadnezzar himself in Jeremiah 49. And this beast has his wings plucked off and is transformed into a man, recalling the humbling and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar that we saw at the end of Daniel 4. The second beast, verse 5, is like a bear. It was raised up on one side, poised and ready to spring. And this bear represented the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. Many scholars think the raised upside suggests the unequal power of the two kingdoms combined and the Medo-Persian Empire, with the Persians being much stronger. And it had a mouthful of ribs of its previous victims. However, he's told to arise and devour even more, i.e. the Babylonians. This empire uh, controlled the land from Egypt and the Aegean Sea in the west all the way to the Indus River in the east. So it's a huge landmass. It's a huge kingdom. Third beast, verse 6, is another composite animal, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and this beast had four heads. 
Most scholars think this leopard represented Alexander the Great of Greece and Macedonia, his speedy conquest of the civilized world. The foreheads represent the division of his kingdom into four parts after his death. It combined ferocity and speed with the ability to see in all four directions at once. And leopards are known for speed, for keen eyesight, keen hearing, allowing them to stalk their prey and pounce unsuspectingly. But the four wings emphasize even more the element of speed, which corresponds well to Alexander the Great's conquest of the known world by age 32. He invaded Asia Minor in 334 B.C. With 10 years, he conquered the whole Persian Empire. And after his death in 323 B.C., his empire was divided among four of his generals, four rulers symbolized by the four heads. And notice it says that dominion was given to it, suggesting a higher power controlling these actions. Then the fourth beast, verse 7, cannot be described in terms of an earthly animal. It just says it's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And symbolized the multiplied strength of the Roman Empire. And it has this bizarre imagery of the horns. Um, not going to get into that a whole lot this week. We'll come back to that next week. But if this vision represents the Roman Empire, it emphasizes its ruthlessness. The Roman Empire was significantly different than the earlier empires. It surpassed them in power, in longevity, and in influence. The world had never before seen anything like it. Now, there's all sorts of debate over what or who the horns symbolize and who the little horn is and so on, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. In fact, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these beasts and their interpretation, mostly because that's next week's sermon. All of that is sort of beside the point because of what comes next. And what comes next is a vision of heaven. It's a vision of heaven, verses 9 through 12. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire had issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so at the center of Daniel's vision is this heavenly courtroom with thrones set up for judgment. It says, and the ancient of days took his seat. God himself sat on the central throne. His clothing was white as snow, representing uncompromising and radiant purity. As we see in Isaiah 1, one of the ways to interpret the Bible is by the Bible. So scripture interprets scripture. And it's one of the cardinal rules of interpretation. So when you see something that says white as snow, 
You look for other places in the Bible, where does it say white as snow? What does that mean? It helps you understand what the first passage. And Isaiah 1 is one of those. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Once God washes them away, although they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So we see this uh, symbol here of uh, cleanliness and purity. Then it says, in the hair of his head, like pure wool, uh, there's uh, lots of verses in the Bible about gray hair symbolizing the wisdom that comes with age. So be nice to all the people with gray hair. And it says, his chariot uh, throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire images of a divine warrior's fearsome power to destroy his enemies. Then a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. A thousand thousands represent angelic attendants. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, representing not one kingdom, but all the kingdoms of the earth standing before God. Now this vision forms a remarkable picture, especially when you remember how reluctant the Bible is to describe God elsewhere. Most descriptions of God are given in terms of his attributes. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Think of when God appeared to Moses in Exodus. You know, he had to hide him in the cleft of a, a rock and his back passed in front of him and it was all smoky and he could barely see. Or when God appeared in a vision to Isaiah and he was covered with smoke and he really couldn't see him and his voice came out of the smoke. In both scenes, you have very little description of God himself. So why do we get such a detailed picture here? Daniel is painting the real world, that is the world to come, in glowing images. And I think to counter the constant propaganda of the, this present evil age. If you think about it, every day our eyes see this world and everything it offers in all its glory. And our ears hear its songs of beauty and wealth and power and fame. And yet at the same time, every day, our eyes see all the horror and evil of this present age. Seen in the tragedies of disaster and disease, famine and war. And it's brought before us most vividly in the persecution of the saints where our ears cannot shut out their screams. And this scene depicts in powerful imagery, <coughs> excuse me, a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, who has the purity to persistently choose the right, and who has the power to enforce his judgments. And then we're told that the court sat in judgment and the books were open. And the books represent God's records of the deeds of those on the earth, uh, which we see echoed in uh, Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 12, it says, And I saw the deed, great and small, standing before the throne. Uh, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. <coughs> and so, again, 
Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you're not sure what it's saying here, you look to everywhere else in the Bible, it talks about this same thing. And then as Daniel keeps watching, the beast with the boastful horn continues to mouth defiance at the heavenly court, and it's swiftly slain, and its body is thrown into the fire. And all the other kingdoms are allowed to remain for a time set by God, and then they're incorporated into the one kingdom that will follow. And so here Daniel conveys to us the greater reality of the world to come. He wants us to understand that the rewards of this age are empty prizes. The golden trinkets of Belshazzar are worthless, just as his time's already up. And in the same way, the horrors of this age have no power to do us real harm. The monsters we dread are as toothless as the lions in Daniel's den. For God is the judge, and he is our judge. It's his tribunal before which we'll stand. And what's written about us in his book will determine whether we reign with the saints forever or whether we spend eternity in fire with the beast. It's that black and white. Jesus himself said, Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And then we're reminded that there's another kingdom coming, a better kingdom, and we get to see that kingdom with a vision of Christ. A vision of Christ, verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 and 14 are among the most referenced verses in the whole Bible. It means there's more verses everywhere else in the Bible that reference back to these two. Apart from probably the first uh, several chapters of Genesis, these are referenced more than just about any other verses in the Bible. And that's why they're so important. We see here a vision of Christ. The Ancient of Days is not the only character in the scene. Starting at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The gospel is in verses 13 and 14, and if you miss it, you don't get the meaning of these verses. It says, verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, The visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. We're going to get into all the stuff about the kingdoms and the beasts next week and deal with what that means. But for Daniel, if you think about it, this is a puzzling picture because this being seems to combine in one person both human and divine traits elsewhere in the old testament this phrase son of man is often used to distinguish mere human beings from god as we saw in our responsive reading this morning from psalm 8 talked about son of man uh, as us meaning us however this son of man seems greater than any mere human 
For it says he's coming on the clouds. It's a sign of divine authority. Psalm 104, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And what's more, when this Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, verse 14, he's given dominion and glory in a kingdom that will last forever and ever. Now these attributes aren't simply the authority that God gives to human kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. This one is far greater than Nebuchadnezzar because he will rule over the entire world forever. Now, it's a lot easier for us to understand this vision of a God-man because we have the benefit of hindsight. And we can see the prophecy's fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself claims that he will fulfill this role. Mark 14, he says, uh, he remained silent. They asked him, are you the Christ? It says, he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the Jewish leaders understood what he was saying. They immediately accused him of blasphemy. They understood this was a claim to say, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. They say he's claiming to be divine. And they immediately accuse him of blasphemy. However, since we have the whole story, we know he'll ultimately ultimately fulfill this role in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes at the end of the age to judge and rule the nations. And Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man more than any other title. It's his favorite title for himself. And when people heard Jesus use the term Son of Man, they had to decide which type of son of man he was. Is he the human son of man of Psalm 8 or the divine son of man of Daniel 7? Technically, he was both, but it took faith to believe he was like the son of man in Daniel. It didn't take any faith to believe that he was uh, the, the human son of man. He was standing right there in front of him. But it took faith to believe he was the son of man of Daniel 7. Now, in its humanity, to quote Eugene Peterson, he says, This son of man has dinner with a prostitute, lunch with a tax collector, wastes his time blessing children when there were Roman legions to be chased from the land. He heals unimportant losers and ignores the high-achieving Pharisees and the influential Sadducees. And ultimately, in his humanity, he hung upon a cross, bled, and died. But his divine majesty, though veiled while he was here on earth, is still present and still evident. He taught as one with authority, Matthew 7. He forgave sins, Luke 5, and many other places. Uh, He healed people, and he spoke of his kingdom. We see that in John 18. And so there's both divine and human aspects present when Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He's very man, and he's very God. It's one of the cardinal truths of our religion. That Jesus is both fully God and fully man. But you think for the first disciples, for those guys who were following Jesus, the hard lesson for them was that Jesus was the son of man uh, focusing on his humanity. That was the problem. 
They didn't want Jesus to come as the son of man of Psalm 8. They wanted him to come as the son of man of Daniel 7. And they had to learn that salvation wasn't coming through the advent of a triumphal heavenly figure wearing a crown and bearing a sword and blasting his opponents with fire from heaven. Rather, it comes through the advent of a baby in a manger who grew up to bear a crown of thorns and carry a cross. So we know from Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But if you fast forward to the end of the scriptures, to the end of the, uh, of, of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, the lesson of the Son of Man is now reversed. What were the hearers of the book of Revelation when it was first written? First and second century, tremendous persecution of the Roman Empire. Christians are getting killed and, and slaughtered and thrown to the lions and burned at the stake. They're in the same situation as Daniel's hearers, suffering intense persecution for their faith. And so they needed to be reminded of the central lesson of Daniel 7. The second coming of our Lord and Savior will not be the same as his first coming. Christ is not eternally suffering upon the cross, which is why we have a cross and not a crucifix. But he will return as the Son of Man in glory, riding on the clouds, bearing a sharp sickle to bring final judgment on his enemies. Revelation 14. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And just like the first disciples, we have to decide which son of man Jesus was, the human one of Psalm 8 or the divine one of Daniel 7. We have to ask ourselves if we have enough faith to believe that he's both. Believing in the humanity of Jesus is easy. Believing in the divinity of Jesus is hard. Believing in the first coming is relatively easy. Believing in the second coming is relatively hard. Karen Spears Zacharias is a crime reporter. She used to be a crime reporter in eastern Oregon. One day she was called to a terrible scene. Her editor called and said, you've got to get over here. There was a man who was wildly unstable, and he'd gone to his parents' home armed with numerous weapons. This man, whose name was Eric, broke into his parents' trailer home with his common-law wife, whose name was Robin. And the first thing they did was shoot his father, whose name was Charles, and they left him for dead. Now, his mother was named Shirley, and she's a gray-haired grandmother, and she was the legal guardian of five of his seven children. And she was a devout Christian. And they burst into Shirley's home. And they took everyone hostage and threatened all their lives. And everyone is, was scared. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of crying and a ton of fear. This grandmother with five of her grandchildren. And they herded him into the back bedroom at the back of the trailer. And everybody is crying. And in the midst of this, Robin turns on Shirley, the grandmother, 
and shoved her, knocked her down onto her bed, climbed on top of her, straddled her, and put a gun to her chest, and then pointed at the picture of Jesus on the wall over her bed and scornfully yelled at her, Where's your Jesus now? And surely, lying on the bed with this woman over top of her, with a gun to her chest, just looked at her calmly and said softly, he's right here. And Robin laughed at her and mocked her and said, you really believe that? And again, very softly, Shirley looked right at her and said, I do. And Shirley survived that day to share that story with Karen Spears Zacharias, who was a woman of faith herself and a member of a PCA church. True story. When we read Daniel's story about the Son of Man, you have to decide if he's the mere man who can't do anything about history and events, or if he's the divine son of man who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Where's your Jesus now? Decide which you believe. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.